All right, we're going to be in Romans this morning, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Just want to encourage you one more time. Lots of stuff going on with us missing some Sundays here due to weather, etc. Don't forget about the new uh, Moms Group Thrive Study starting on Tuesday. Heart to Heart coming up the 7th. Uh, missions trip to Mexico, able to collect supplies for that. Uh, ladies, um, you got the Women of Faith coming up in May. And I'm sure I'm forgetting other things, but there's lots of things going on. So just prayerfully consider getting involved with those and hope the Lord blesses you with that. So anyways, Romans chapter 3. Been a couple weeks since we've been in here. And really what we're going to get to this point is verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's, that's the main point here. Now we're going to build on that today. But what happens is to get to this point, we have this great passage that we've referred to numerous times starting in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. There's that phrase, all under sin. Every one of us is under sin. Paul goes very poetically into this. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understand, none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Which takes us once again to verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Here's the problem. Most of the time as a church, we stop at that point. Let's just constantly remind you that you're a sinner. Let's just constantly remind you that you're an awful, awful person and that we don't deserve heaven, and that your life is a wreck, your relationship with Christ is a wreck, you should read more, you should pray more, you should serve more, you should witness. And let's just beat you down with that point. And so then we all walk out of church feeling completely and utterly dejected. So that's our point this morning, is to deject you, just to make you feel awful. Because that's what it is. Verse 9, we're all under sin. Verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Guess what? Verse 10, you're not righteous. You don't understand. You don't seek after God. I mean, come on, we seek after God a little bit here and there, but not really. Our tongue gets us in trouble, verse 13. Our mouth gets us in trouble, verse 14. We're all sinners. So Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's where we stop. But I really want to focus this morning on verses 24, 25, and 26. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness and He might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. lot of theology words in there, right? Justified, redemption, propitiation, righteousness, forbearance. Some of your translations may say words like declared, freed, sacrifice, made right, fair. But those big fancy words, justified, redemption, propitiation, righteousness, forbearance. When's the last time you used one of those words in everyday life? You don't. We don't use these words. These are what we would call theological terms. You may find a way to use the word justified. I am justified in that action. Maybe redemption but I bet you can't remember the last time in everyday language you used the word propitiation. These are theological terms. Now, what do these theological terms mean? 
See, for us to fully understand what Paul is trying to teach us through the Spirit, we got to know what the Word means. I, I get verse 23. I've sinned. I, I can't meet God's standard. I don't deserve heaven. I get that. But what does it mean that I'm justified? What does it mean that I'm redeemed? Let's talk about this. Justified. Justified means to be declared right. I heard Chuck Swindoll say this one time, but I've never forgot it. Justified means just as if I've never sinned. Justified. You've been declared right by God. Imagine this heavenly scene. You're standing there in heaven, and you're looking around, and you know your sin. You know your failings. But Jesus stands up. He vouches for you. He justifies you. He declares you righteous. That's what that word means. Somebody stands up for you and declares you righteous. They pronounce you righteous. They get that final say. They declare that truth. That's what justified means. You have been declared righteous by Jesus Christ. He has the authority to do it. See, here's the problem. I can't declare you righteous. I can't say by the blood of James that you are now righteous. Only Jesus can do that. He's the only one that has the authority to declare somebody righteous. Our boys right now are obsessed with the Foursquare game. For you that have kids, you know there's a Foursquare thing back in the fellowship hall, and the people play Foursquare all the time. So they wanted to, we have a Foursquare court now down in our basement. So we went out and bought a Foursquare ball, and we have this Foursquare court. So the older four go down and play all the time. Now, what happens is the older four are down there playing, and there always arises some argument. Was the ball out? Was the ball on the line? Etc. So what happens, I usually hear the pitter-patter of Layden, our fourth one, first. He comes up the stairs, then Kenan, then Judah, then Elias. Now, I don't know why the smallest one is always the first one up the stairs. And they come up, and all four of them stand in front of me. And they start saying some story. Judah hit the ball, it landed on the line, but Kenan said it didn't. And Layden thinks this. And so then I become the de facto judge of Foursquare, even though I wasn't even down there. I don't even know what's going on. I spend more of my days settling four square arguments than anything else. But I'm the one that is justified. I'm the one that has the authority to declare who's right. I am the four square authority in the Irvin household. So therefore, I get to justify the answer. And sometimes I just pick it by the kid I love the most. You know what? You're right. So <laughs> Jesus is the authority to justify you. No one else can do that. No one else can declare you righteous. If you die and go to heaven and God says, why should I let you in? And you say, you know why? My Aunt Ruth said I was a good boy. She cannot justify you. She cannot declare you righteous. It has to be Jesus and it has to be Christ alone. Go with me real quick, if you will, to Titus 3. Titus chapter 3. As you're going to Titus 3, I'm just going to read a quick verse out of 1 Corinthians 6. And such were some of you, sinners, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. You were declared righteous by the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of God, nothing else. Titus, please, Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, let's go ahead and start in verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, 
not by works of righteousness, which we have done. I can't justify myself. But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It has to be Jesus, verse 6, verse 7, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. By being justified by Christ, declared righteous through his grace, I now am an heir of heaven, I now have an inheritance in heaven, and I am declared righteous. To use 14 times in the book of Romans, that key phrase, that's what it means to be justified, to declared righteous. What about the next one, though? So we're justified. Okay, we got that. Back to Romans 3. Redemption. Justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption, some of your translations may say freed. It literally means delivered. It means payment of a ransom. Think about that for a second. It means that there's been a ransom that you were kidnapped in your sin, if you will, by the enemy, and only Jesus could pay the ransom. So here you are held hostage to sin. You're held hostage to that lust, that desire. You can't set yourself free. And so Christ has to come in and He's the only one that can pay the ransom. I can't free you from your sin. I can't take you away from that kidnapping that you are of sin. I can only point you towards Christ who can redeem you, deliver you that payment of the ransom. I've got a quick verse I want to share with that. If you don't mind, Alan, go ahead and put that up. It's out of Ephesians 1. In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption, payment of the ransom through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. It's Christ is the only one that can pay the ransom. Only one. Now, there's lots of good things out there in the world. Lots of good things that would take you deeper in your walk spiritually. Being in the Word. Being in prayer. We have a baptism service coming up here in March. Baptism is a wonderful thing. I encourage you to get baptized. But baptism cannot redeem you from your sins. Baptism cannot pay the ransom that is owed. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can, and it's done through His grace. We keep seeing this word grace mentioned again and again. Grace literally means gift. It's a gift that is given to you. Now, you have the choice to whether to open that gift or to reject that gift. He's not going to force it on you. You have to choose. Now, think about this for a second. If Christ is the one that's redeemed me through His blood, His blood saved me, and that grace is that gift of that, why would I try to go out and do it on my own? I mean, imagine going back to Christmas and someone giving you an amazing gift. It's underneath the tree, and you know what it is, and you say, you know what, instead of you giving to this me, I would much rather go out and buy it myself. That makes no sense. And this is a gift that you can't even buy anyplace else. It has to come through Christ alone. But yet, the church has now morphed into this entity where we try to redeem ourselves through works, through actions, whatever. And it comes down to His grace. Grace is a beautiful thing. Now, the problem is, we run into these extremes of grace. And I just want to share this point with you real quick. I was thinking about this this week, these extremes of grace. You have this one extreme of grace, where that if you want to be under God's grace, His free gift, you have to dress a certain way, act a certain way, read a certain translation, do church a certain way, and you're under His grace. There's this legalism of grace. But the other extreme, you have what I like to call these thin ice Christians. They like to push grace as much as they can. I'm saved, but look at me, I'm still cool, because every now and then a few words come out of my mouth that shouldn't. I'm in His grace, though. Look at me, I'm in His grace, but you know what? I'm going to wear this outfit that kind of pushes the boundaries a little bit. And I like to push this grace thing. And to me, it reminds me of that person on the ice going out as far as they can before they fall in. 
where are we really supposed to be in His grace? How about just right there? Redeemed through His blood, forgiven of our sins, and accept His gift. Man, redemption is a beautiful thing. Delivered, payment of a ransom that we couldn't do. How was this taken care of? I'm justified, declared right, freed from my sin. How? It's through propitiation. Can you go to the next slide real quick, Elm? Propitiation is an interesting word. It literally means sacrifice, and it literally means mercy seat. we got a picture here that we want to show you real quick. This next one is the picture of the Ark of the Covenant, and you can see on top is a picture of the mercy seat. That's what that word literally means. When you read the word propitiation of our sins, sacrifice of our sins, literally means he is the mercy seat for our sins. Let's talk about what the mercy seat is. Go with me to Exodus 25, please. What good does it do to know that he's the mercy seat if we don't fully understand what the mercy seat is? Exodus 25. I've been declared righteous, justified. I have been redeemed, payment of the ransom. And now he's my sacrifice. He's my mercy seat. Exodus 25, please. In Exodus 25, they have the list here of what they were needing to do to make the Ark of the Covenant. And you see in Exodus 25, verse 10, it starts out that the Ark needs to be made out of a kale wood, and it's covered in gold. Verse 11, it's covered inside and outside in gold. Verse 12, you put four rings on it. And then verse 13, you make poles of wood covered in gold to carry it. So that's the Ark. That's the bottom part. You see the rings, you see the poles, and they're all covered in gold of this kale wood. Now the top, though, the mercy seat, is something a little bit different. And that's what we want to talk about here for a second. So we get now to this point of the cherubim. Verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat. Here's our word. Of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. Cubit is generally understood to be about 18 inches. Verse 18. You shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of its one piece with the mercy seat. Cherubim are a form of angel. And when you see cherubim in the Bible, always think of the holiness of God. And that's what you see here is this mercy seat, this ark represented God's presence. And those angels represent the holiness of God. Verse 20. The cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering their mercy seat. With their wings. God's holiness covers the mercy seat. And they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. Here's the key. Verse 22. And there I will meet with you. I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. Remember that point. He speaks with us from above the mercy seat. Stay with me. Go to Leviticus now. One book to the right. Leviticus. Leviticus 16. So the mercy seat, it's a picture of God's presence. I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. The cherubim represent the holiness there. So we know what this is now. Leviticus 16, verse 2. Leviticus 16. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place, inside the veil, before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. What you have here in Leviticus 16 is the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, the one day of the year where the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and he offered a sacrifice of sins for the entire nation of Israel. Entire nation of Israel. So one day a year, the uh, Holy of Holies were open for the high priest to go in, Offer that sacrifice. And where is it at? Verse 2. I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. I will speak to you from the mercy seat. I will appear to you above the mercy seat. Keep those two points in mind. Jump ahead in Leviticus 16. And let's go ahead and put it in verse uh, 12. 
Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat. Three things now. I will speak to you from the mercy seat. I will appear to you above the mercy seat. And now we have this cloud of incense covering the mercy seat. Verse 14, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat. On the east side and before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Seven shows completion in the Bible. Put this all together. Put this all together. We have the mercy seat, means sacrifice, propitiation. That's where God appears. That's where God speaks from. That's where our prayers end up because we know from Revelation that the incense spoken of here is representative of our prayers. And then what we have here in verse 14, we have the blood, the blood on the mercy seat. So when the Bible says that Jesus is your propitiation, it means that Jesus is literally your mercy seat. This is how you talk to God, through Jesus. This is how God appears to you in your life, is through Jesus. This is how you have forgiveness of sins, through Jesus. This is how your prayers have any merit at all, through Jesus. If you take away the mercy seat, if you take away the propitiation of Jesus, you have no access to God. That's why that word is so powerful. When they were writing this 2,000 years ago, and when these Jews would read that verse of Jesus being the mercy seat, they would know all these things. They would know the power of that mercy seat. Jesus is what gives us access to God. It's how we can pray to God the Father. It's how we can have forgiveness of sins. It is where we have a relationship with the Lord. Without Christ being our sacrifice, our mercy seat, we have no access to God. That's why Jesus said, when you pray, pray in my Name. You're name-dropping Jesus. If I would pray in the name of Fred, God wouldn't care. Fred didn't die on the cross for my sins. Fred is not the mercy seat. You know God because you know Jesus. That's what's so vital. It's probably been 15, maybe 20 years ago. Uh, Renee invited Dawn and I, and it was Renee, Dawn, and I, and Christian. I think Christian went with us to the Tigers game, right? We went to a Tigers game about, uh, gosh, probably 15, 20 years ago. And so we were sitting there, and Renee had these seats because of where he worked. And so they were kind of like a corporate-type seat, so whoever sat there, the tickets came from where he worked. So we're sitting there in this game watching the Tigers play, and somebody comes up to us and says basically, hey, do you work at this place where Renee works? And I said, no, I don't, I don't work there. I said, he works there, talking to Renee. So they go over and talk to Renee for a little bit. They come back a couple innings later, and they brought us T-shirts and food and all the above. Because we knew Renee, we got stuff. That's why I go with Renee everywhere I go. I'm just hoping somebody knows Renee so I can get more stuff. That's the way it is with Jesus. God says, James, I don't know you, but I know Jesus, and Jesus vouches for you. Jesus justified me. Jesus redeemed me. Jesus is the propitiation, so now I have access to God the Father. Because if I would just go pray to God, God's like, yeah, that's nice words, but we got this sin problem we got to deal with here first. Jesus, my propitiation, my mercy seat, the blood is sprinkled through that. My prayers now go. God appears. Now we can speak to him. That's the vitalness of Christ. Basically, what it comes down to is, if we know all this, Everything we should do should be just be pointing people towards the mercy seat of Jesus. Isn't that all that matters? 
Now they have to choose it. It's just like that word grace. It's a gift. Man, I tell you, the Lord's been showing me a lot here lately. And he's been showing me so much when it comes to church. And I know you know this, but I didn't know this. I've been the pastor out here 15 years. and I just figured this out recently. It's not my job to grow this church. That's the Lord's job. It's my job to point people towards the mercy seat of Christ. It's not my job to fix everybody's problems. It's my job to point them towards the mercy seat of Jesus Christ. See, we throw too much on us and it becomes a pride. A pride of, I can fix that. If I would just talk to them, it would be better. If I just had a counseling session with them, I'm sure it would go better. If I could just get them on the phone, I could put a Band-Aid on their problems for a good five minutes. Or I could just point them towards the mercy seat of Jesus Christ. And I tell you this, the, the longer I'm out here and the more I realize how the 21st century does church, you've heard me say this now for the last year, this concept of church that we do is not really the way Axis says it. Really, the way we're supposed to do it is be intimately involved in each other's lives and say, I want to see you go deeper in Christ, and I want to see you help me go deeper in Christ. That, that's what it is. It's not about who has the biggest church. It's not about any of this. In fact, I was thinking about my week this week and how much time I spent talking about church, talking about building plans, and do we need to do this, and adding on, and staff, and payroll, and all this other type of stuff. And I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be fun just to go disciple somebody? And that's what we're here for. And I tell you, I really think the Lord is doing something. I think the word out here for 2015 out here at Harvest is vision. And I keep going to that passage in Proverbs where it says, where there's no vision, the people perish. Pray for the vision the Lord has for us because, you know what? Let's just be blunt, and I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way. We could make changes and do things, and we could just really see this church grow numerically. And at what cost? Have warm bodies fill seats? No. Let's have people passionate about Jesus. I mean, that's all that matters. I tell you, the longer I do this, the more I realize the only thing I care about is, are you saved? And if you are saved, what are you doing now about that? And let's just get back to the focus of the mercy seat of who Jesus is, justified, redeemed, and the sacrifice. And let's not allow these things of the world to drag us down anymore. Let's just get out there for the Lord. Okay, soapbox over. Back to Romans chapter 3. Justified, declared righteous, redeemed, payment of sin, ransom, propitiation, he's my sacrifice. Takes us to the word righteousness. Righteousness, we've said this before, to be declared right, to be made right. That's what it means, just to be made right. we got another verse on this real quick. Alan's got one here in 2 Corinthians. For he made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. How do you become right? Through Jesus. Just, just remember that I know you know this. You don't become righteous through reading the Bible. You don't become righteous through prayer. You don't become righteous through service. You don't become righteous through baptism. You become righteous through Jesus Christ. And once you know Jesus Christ, you're righteous. And then you read and pray and do all those things to learn more of Him because you just love Him. You just want him. You just want to be around him. And you want to go tell other people about him. And you want to then you come home and you're just, you want to tell your spouse and your kids, guess what I read today? I learned more about the Lord and I just want to share it with you. Because it's just such a part of your life. And, and what happens here, we just see this concept. Come to church, worship, get fed, go home, come back in seven days. No, we're here to equip you. We're here to say, let's go and make this a part of our life. This word righteousness and justified are from the same Greek word. Same Greek word. Justified to be declared right, righteous to be made right. 
So I am justified, declared right, because I am righteous, I have been made right. They're the same word, same Greek word there. So put this all together. Jesus has declared me right. He has redeemed me from sin. He is my propitiation, my mercy seat, my sacrifice. I am made righteous in him. That word righteous is used 30 times in the book of Romans. 30 times. I was sin. Jesus was no sin. He became sin for me. And then our last word here that we see, verse 25, forbearance. Some of your translations may say fair, fairness, forbearance. That's not a word you use a whole lot. It means delay of punishment, tolerance. I'm going to work tomorrow when somebody really ticks you off. I will have forbearance with you right now. Let them think about what that means. They don't know if they're going to get hit or you're going to walk away. You know that? Forbearance, delay of punishment. Why would God delay punishment? I do that with my kids. Worst thing you could ever hear at the Irvin household is go sit on my bed. If I say go sit on my bed, you're in big trouble. So if you ever come over to my house and I say, listen, go sit on my bed. You are in so much trouble. And, and the way we have our room set up is they sit on the bed and we have our dresser with a mirror. And they just look at their little sinful faces in that mirror. Now, sometimes I go in right away. Other times I have forbearance. I have a delay of punishment. Now, I don't make it go a long three, four hours at most. You know, I don't let it go on forever. But as I have forbearance, I sometimes walk in and I have a broken little child. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a good way. I have a broken little child that looks at me. And Layden just did this the other day. I said, Layden, go sit on my bed. Back to Foursquare, Layden has a tendency when he hands the ball back to his brothers, gets within six inches of their face and throws it as hard as he can. And then he just says, I'm just giving it to them. Yeah. They're just going to give it to you, bud. I mean, that's what they... So... Layden did that the second time in one day. Go sit on my bed, Layden. I walked in there and there was little tears. And, and I, I, I'm not making this up. Layden looked at me and he goes, Dad, I know you need to spank me because what I did was wrong and I'm sorry. I didn't spank him. Grace, mercy, forbearance. It was a repentant heart. Now, sometimes I have forbearance and I go in there. And as soon as I walk in, I have a kid that tells me, well, you know what? I know I'm in here, but you know who really should be in here? <laughs> okay. Forbearance didn't work. God has forbearance with you. He has delay of punishment. Why? Verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He has forbearance with you because he, he doesn't want to. I mean, I, I, I don't understand where we got this concept of God likes punishing us. I can give you passage after passage, especially in the book of Ezekiel, because Ezekiel is a tough book. Ezekiel is a book of where the prophet Ezekiel is going to Israel. And God tells Ezekiel right at the beginning of the book, I need to make your head hard as flint because you're not going to be able to handle what I want you to say to these people. And he basically tells Ezekiel, guess what? No one's going to listen to you. I just want to tell you that from the beginning. Can you imagine being in charge spiritually of a group of people and God says, I want you to go preach and preach and preach. Hey, but by the way... No one's ever going to listen to you. That's why Ezekiel is full of judgment, but they're full of these beautiful passages of where God says, turn from your sin. God comes right out and says in Ezekiel, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Parents, you have no pleasure in disciplining your children. We don't. 
God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So his forbearance, his fairness, his delay of punishment, his tolerance is to why, verse 26, to demonstrate his righteousness, his love. That's what he wants to do. Put this all together now. Verses 9 through 23. God love you, but you're an awful, ugly sinner. You're awful. I'm awful. We are just completely unrighteous, unholy, unloving, awful people. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But, verse 24, being justified, declared righteous by His grace, a free gift, through the redemption, payment of ransom, that is in Christ Jesus, only Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation mercy seat, sacrifice, prayers, presence of God, talking to Him, by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, righteousness to be made right, because in His forbearance, tolerance, fairness, delay of punishment, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just in the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. That's what it means to have a relationship with Christ. You are justified, redeemed, the propitiation of your sins, righteousness, and forbearance. Every now and then as a Christian, we get into our little Christianese language. I am justified by the blood of Jesus through His grace and righteousness. Yeah, now I know what that means. Those are some good terms to describe that. Good old theological terms that we may not use a lot in our everyday life, but as you read through the Bible, you see those terms. It's like, now I understand what those mean. I understand what the propitiation of my sins is. The mercy seat. I understand what all this means now. Now the question comes up. What are you going to do with this information? What are you going to do? See, you know, amen, let's go home. Yeah, we could. Or amen, let's go tell somebody about this. See, this is where we have to decide. Once again, I'm going to go back to this point. What is the purpose of all of us being here? To give you a time of fellowship, to give you a time of worship, to give you a time in the Word, to give you a time of service, give you opportunities. There's numerous small groups, studies, missions, trips, etc. But it's to equip you in God's Word to then have you go out and be a difference maker in where you live and where you work and what the Lord wants you to do. And that's what I want you to do. I, I, I tell you, I want you to be so passionate about who you are in Christ that you just want to just... You just can't control it. See, the problem is we have reached a point now in the 21st century, this idea of being passionate about the Lord. Maybe we use the term on fire. We have downgraded what that term means. See, nowadays, who's on fire for the Lord? A moral person who believes in God. No, that's not passionate for the Lord. Well, how do we? Oh, they're, they're on fire for the Lord. Why? Well, they believe in God, and they're, they're very moral. I know a lot of moral men and women They would never cheat on their spouse. They would never do this. They would never lie. They would never steal. They would never allow any words to come out of their mouth. They are moral people that believe in God and I believe love God. But they are not passionately committed to who Jesus is. But we look at a moral goodness with a belief in God as that's exactly what Jesus wanted. That's not what he wanted. He wanted people to be so impacted by who he is that just can't stand it. Moral people that believe in God aren't willing to put their life on the line to spread the gospel. 
passionate people about who Jesus is are ones that are saying, I don't want this place to be the same anymore. I want to be a difference maker in all I do. I tell you, I just want to encourage you. Let God's word be alive and active in your life. Let him be the foundation of your life. Let him be your mercy seat. And my goodness, there will be a change in everything you do and say. Marv, if you want to come forward here for the final song. What Paul does from this point forward, starting in verse 27, is he basically...